Hello and welcome to Ken Drew's Real Dirt Gardening 2.0. My guest today is Rick Dark, the popular author, photographer, designer, and teacher. He has a new book written with Doug Talame featuring 500 color photos of plants, gardens, birds and bugs, and other wildlife. Before we join Rick, here's a bit of background. In 2007, Doug Talamy wrote his seminal book, Bringing Nature Home. He pointed out the importance of creating landscapes that considered the animals that co-evolved with local plants and how important it was to include those plants for the sake of their partners. That notion hit a chord with home gardeners, whether they were interested in the life around their properties before or were enlightened by the new approach presented in the book. The only thing missing was suggestions on how to go about doing it and attractive examples. In order to sell a great idea, you need to show people that. You need to show them beautiful examples and how to go about doing it. In 2014, Rick partnered with Doug to produce a new book, The Living Landscape. The book's subtitle says it all, Designing for Beauty and Biodiversity in the Home Garden. A home garden is often seen as separate from the natural world surrounding it. In truth, it is actually just one part of a larger landscape made up of many living layers. Doug showed Rick that the incredible life in his garden was everywhere, often hiding in plain sight. Rick showed Doug the importance of communicating in context, of finding the animals in the garden, and also showing them along with the plant communities and the environments that support them. And I'm pleased to welcome Rick Dark to Kendrew's Real Dirt. Rick, we're going to be talking about your book, but first, tell us about what you discovered from what Doug had to say in his original work. I understand that you're neighbors. Yeah, we are. We live just a few miles apart, and um, we've known each other for a long time, uh, peripherally as kind of professional colleagues. Uh, and Melinda has, my wife, Melinda Zor, uh, is the assistant director of the Botanic Garden at the university where Doug has been until recently chair of the Department of Wildlife Ecology and Entomology. They had worked together, and I could see from their interaction how enriching it was for Melinda to be, you know, passing ideas back and forth with an entomologist. And actually, Doug's an extraordinary birder. He really knows a lot about ornithology, as does his wife, Cindy. And Doug and I had been on the road together, and we thought, you know, maybe maybe really could both benefit from doing a book together. And it has happened so much more than I ever imagined. It's really been quite a delight. I feel quite fortunate. Well, you mentioned in uh, all of your books, including your incredibly popular books on ornamental grasses and even in the American Woodland Garden, that you only had a few photos of animals. So were Doug's ideas a bit of a revelation to you? Now, I've been shooting animals for a long time. And in fact, in this new book, I've got quite a few animal photographs in it. Uh, but I hadn't had an opportunity to use them in books because it just people thought about gardens, they thought about plants. There were really not that many serious gardening books that had animals in them. And of course, when you think, as I know you do very well, you think about pages and the opportunity to enliven pages with color and form and textures, if you can say, hey, it's not just plants, the animals are fair game, they're part of the story, it really makes for a pretty compelling page layout. Well, the, you write about in the book about functionality, you called it, and the ecological functions of gardens uh, and what landscapes can do. So what is this, this giant premise? Well, I think Doug did lay it out scientifically fairly well in bringing nature home. And 
well, back up a little bit. When I did that American Woodland Garden, I was trying to find justification for why you might not garden exclusively with native plants, but that you would use a, a good um, component of them. And I even looked around at Stephen Jay Gould, who was one of the most eloquent people at the time, and uh, you know, an eminent biologist. And basically, he said, "I can't. I don't have the quote exactly in my head, but he said basically, there isn't any." specific reason I can say, but if an emphasis on growing locally indigenous plants at least gives us the humility to say we're not going to homogenize the whole world, that's a good thing. So at that point, that was really the argument. Doug took it so much further, and it's interesting that this knowledge has really come from his work and some others doing work along similar lines, but it's about relationships. It's not just about a sense of place, and that, I think, is probably the biggest shift in the whole paradigm. I originally was attracted to natives, again, if you will. We redefined natives for the book using a relationship component, but I, I was interested because I wanted the gardens that I was making for myself and for others to reflect some authentic uh, nature of the place. And one way of doing that is to use materials that have been there for a long time. But when you add this idea of functional relationships to the plants that you use in the garden have some relationship to the place and its aesthetics to the place and its other living things. And do they really contribute? Then you've opened up a whole new uh, approach. So you're talking about food and you're talking about shelter. So wh what are you, what are you talking about? Well, you know, we lay it out in the book. If you say, what does a plant do? And just, you know, trying to enumerate you know, functions, a plant in, aesthetic terms can add beauty, it can add fragrance, it can add sound, it can provide screening, it can shelter you, it can shelter animals, it can sequester carbon, it can help with groundwater recharge, it can cool the place. Uh, you can go on and on with the functions of plants. And the, the idea of sustaining things in different trophic levels, if you will, the, the um, the things that eat at different levels uh, in the living world. That's one part of it. But what we wanted to do with this book is to say, take a functional approach. Just when you're making your garden, decide what are the functions of that garden? Does it need to provide you refuge? Does it need to provide you uh, a visual vantage point? Does it need to shelter you? Do you want wildlife around you? Do you want scents? Do you want fragrance? Do you want... Uh, wetlands, drylands, a place to roll around, a place to run, a place to converse, a place to eat. These are all things that you really rationally should lay out when you're making a garden or when you're continuing to make a garden you've had for a long time. And that's really what the book does. Well, and you're talking about a place to play, and that, and that makes me think of a lawn. And you know there's the whole anti-lawn movement. But ha, uh, what's your justification i don't i'm not putting you on the spot because i have a justification too and i've sort of said it which is recreation uh, but what's your justification for the amount of lawn that you have um the fact that that um we have you know Molly and i've been on this property now for a quarter century it seems hard to believe but <laughs> in 25 years we have not ever irrigated what might be called lawn it's really low green stuff there's probably mm -hmm. almost as much broadleaf component as there is true grasses. But in 25 years, we have not fertilized, we've not irrigated, 
We've not defatched. We've not deplugged. We've, we've done nothing with it except to use a mulching mower and not keep it mowed very low. And you can see from photographs in the book, there are plenty of photographs that show what might be called our lawn. And 25 years later, it is still a highly walkable surface. You, I love to teach uh, children that they need to be aware that a lawn like this can be full of sleeping bees in the morning. Most kids mm-hmm. don't know that if they're growing up with, uh, with lawns that are highly uh, regimented you know, through herbicide use. Mm-hmm. But our lawn actually uh, does contribute to a lot of things if you're talking about even, even fireflies because we very often are letting this grow four to six inches before it gets mowed in a lot of places. You have a lot of insects in that turf. But again, it's not just grass. And so... Um, we, we have reduced the, the lawn greatly over the time, but what's here is what we really do use to walk. Um, you know, we had our wedding in the garden years ago. We don't do weddings, but we had our own wedding. We need to put a tent up here. Um, we have a dog that runs. We have kids that come over and play. They're not ours. They're loner kids, but they are very happy to have a place to throw a ball or just run around. Uh, we have a, uh, we're not rural, but we are uh, out here enough in the country that we have a well and a septic system, and the septic system's at the back of the property. And I have to keep a way that a vehicle could get in there to maintain it if I ever needed to. So I've got to have enough that you can actually drive a machine through the landscape. It's all practicality, it's all about function. Uh, and you do write a lot about function. I don't know if we're making the complete point that one of the major things that Doug and you are proposing is that there there are going to be holes in leaves, <laughs> to put it another way. And uh, it makes me think of Neil DeBall's quote, which I love. Uh, he first asked, do you like birds? And everyone says yes. And then he said, well, you better get used to bugs. And I don't think people really realize that birds, when they're breeding that baby birds are fed bugs and an enormous number of bugs and we have to get used to bugs and I think many of us have bugs in our gardens and we don't even realize it. Yeah, I think there's a, I mean I'm a highly visual person as you are and I I don't have any problem with holy leaves or holy <laughs> trees. I I see the meaning in it. I understand the um, the intrigue in that diversity. So while I'm looking at texture and I'm looking at color and I'm looking at form and I'm looking at the pageantry that goes through the seasons, the idea that a leaf is quote imperfect because it's got a hole out of it or a little, little, um, you know, divot in it, that doesn't reduce it for me. I don't want a garden full of dead plants, but even, even so we were, Melinda and I were just recently took a break from the work. We were uh, camping, tent camping in West Virginia we got down to the North Fork of the South Branch of the Potomac. We're looking across this wonderful river. There's hardly anybody around. We're looking across to big, wonderful oaks, mostly um, uh, Quercus prinus, the uh, chestnut oak. And in the top of one tree, there's about 30 cedar wax wings. They're on the only major dead branch in the tree. Because they wanted a vantage point, or that's for some reason I couldn't talk to them, they were too far away, but they saw something functional in that, a dead limb in the tree. And, you know, we've, we've got that kind of information in this book, uh, showing that, that a little bit of imperfection is really not imperfection. It's highly functional diversity, and 
you know, dead, alive, it all is fulfilling some purpose in that broad spectrum of life. When you talk about native plants, uh, which you did mention that, and I guess the thing that we're trying to present here is that animals co-evolved with plants, and that's one of the reasons to have the local plants. I'll even say local, because that's what I like to say for native, that local plants are important because the local insects and local other animals can find the function in those plants, whether it's eating them or hiding in them or some other purpose. In, in your garden... I, I know you have non-native plants, and those can be used by insects as well. Uh, what percentage do you think you have? Have you ever thought about the percentage of native to non-native in your own? Oh, yeah. Way? I mean, I get asked that, and I think about it. And it's, it's not a simple question like most of these things are, because you can have – I could say, all right, are you, do you mean in terms of species? Because in terms of species, we've certainly got more natives than – exotics, if, you, if I call natives plants that are from my mid-Atlantic region. But then you could say, well, how about biomass? And that's a harder thing to measure. I mean, there's a, there's a uh, no-way spruce that was planted by former residents, you know, built the house in 1951. The thing is huge. And, you know, I've never had the means to take it out. Uh, and it's not doing any harm, but it, it, you know, I have to count that among the uh, – uh, the biological content of the garden. Uh, then again, we've got a, uh, uh, a, a local oak uh, that is probably 100 feet tall, and um, that might that might kind of weigh against that. So, you know, certainly if you look at this garden, to most people they will notice the predominance of natives. But there are many things here. Uh, we have uh, four katsura trees in the garden, and. I love that tree because it was in Grover Cleveland Park in Essex Mills, mm -hmm. New Jersey. I grew up with it. I know it. I love its fermenting leaves on the ground in the fall. I've known that same thing in Japan. It's a it's a very well adapted tree, and I could defend it to the death as being part of our landscape. It is not something that is doing harm. Uh, when Doug and I were first talking about this book. And we were walking through this garden, you know, thinking about our approaches and the message we wanted to put out. I said to Doug, you know, here's an example of an exotic that is innocuous. It's not doing any harm. And his first response is, yes, it's innocuous, but how is it contributing? Mm -hmm. And the katsura trees do not contribute to the trophic levels with acorns like an oak does. But as we were talking and we're looking the wind blows a little bit, and, and it's just very late winter. And then all of a sudden, what is revealed is an oriole nest in one of the katsuras at the edge of our property, where it goes out into the sunny space in the adjacent uh, land. So there's an example of how function works. That tree is not contributing food to native insects, which are then fed to native bird uh, fledglings. But it is contributing shelter, and it's actually contributing a part of habitat that allows at least one species of bird, which is an edge species, to make its home in that tree. That tree is also cooling our garden. That tree is adding beauty. It's adding form. It's adding texture. It's adding fragrance. It is not something that takes up resources. We don't have to – we wouldn't spray it, but it, it doesn't need any kind of herbicides or pesticides. It is – free of any diseases that would take it out. So there's the balance. Now, if we had a whole garden full of katsura trees, 
We might get oriole nests, but we wouldn't be contributing that much more. But we have multiple oaks in the garden. We have layers from below ground to above ground that all contribute in meaningful ways to the sustenance of local and regional life. And so that's the balance. And that's part of the message of the book is that not everything in the garden has to pass muster for every function, but the balance of functions is critical. Now, you mentioned that you saw that oriole nest, and that makes me think of one of the chapters in the new book, which is The Living Landscape, and I'm speaking mm -hmm. with Rick Dark, and that's the art of observation. And the thing that I realize is that I'm not observing right. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at the plants, and there's life there, and I don't, I don't necessarily see it. And even when I look for it, maybe I'm not good at it, which is kind of funny because I, as I think I'm a good looker too. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, one of my, my favorite authors um, in a whole different realm, John Stilgo, has written a number of fabulous books. He's a professor of landscape history at Harvard. And my, probably my favorite is one that's called uh, Outside Lies Magic. And in it, he just talks about finding the extraordinary in the ordinary of ways to see. And he talks about everything from life to the different coatings on the wires above head, above your head, whether they are, uh, you know, fiber optic lines or, or uh, old fashioned uh, telephone lines. And the coatings reflect the light differently. This is where you and I can understand this. Once you get your eye tuned to that, you can say, oh my God, look at that. That particular metallic coating is so much better at reflecting the morning sun or the setting sun. Once you've once you've been attuned to something like that, you know how to do it and you can build on it. And that chapter in the book on the art of observation offers a number of specific examples of different ways to look, to observe, and, and especially to record those observations so that you can begin to build what's essentially kind of a, a database you can refer to to say, all right, what did I see? When did I see it? What were the, the, uh, the details of it? And if I see something like it again, I can go back and refer to that and say, oh, I'm learning. I'm adding to my knowledge. So to begin to observe, you have to begin to observe. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a certain discipline to it. And I suppose because I originally thought I would be an engineer, which takes discipline. And then I got into uh, field botany and ecology and systematic botany. Those are all things that teach you about organization. You, you have to be highly disciplined to follow those, those um, sciences. And although I probably am, you know, temperamentally more inclined to an artistic approach to things, I love having that discipline there because it just forces me to, to make a note or nowadays so often because these incredible new cameras can make the note for you. They'll, they'll record the image right down in a second. You can put a a voice message next to it and say, you know, here's an oriole nest on the edge of the tree in case can't remember what it was. We have a lot of tools that can help us a lot. And in fact, one of the examples in the chapter on the art of observation is about how to color pick from a photograph of a real landscape that you've taken and make a chart that you can use as a reference chart. I mean, years ago, people would talk about being a painter in the garden, but it was so superficial. It was never explained in any detail. And now every one of us has a tool, you know, you can do most of this with a phone that <laughs> could actually allow you to, uh, to observe and to record and then to, to create strategies on how to be authentic in your color palette 
that's actually a scientific color picking. It's not just, mm. you know, I did this because I think it's like the local landscape. You actually can say it is. Well, you have a lot in the book about layers, and I know you're not just talking about the treetop canopy and the shrub layer and the woodland ephemerals. You're talking about all kinds of layers, including what you've just been talking about, the 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 depth that you can discover in the landscape. And we, we just have a little bit of time left, but I do want to have you talk a bit about the largest and last chapter in the book, which is doing it, applying layers to the home garden. Yeah, we start off by showing layers in wild landscapes. Again, you mentioned layers. It's not just vertical and horizontal. It's the temporal layers. There's layers that have to do with time. And it's also the cultural layers, those layers that we add to the writing on the landscape. And that last chapter, which is the largest in the book, takes all of that learning, all the observation, all of the relational biological things that are laid out, and then it applies them to home gardens. But one of the, the uh, intents of the book, and I think you can understand this as a photographer, is that we wanted to, to capture and to um, print photographs that were authentic, that they really represented what we were saying, so that those photographs can be poured over time and time again. You could look at a photograph because it's got a particular native plant you like in it, but if you keep studying it, you say, okay, well, how have they treated the edge? How have they treated the layers? How have they treated the the, um, uh, the weed controller, any of the things that are in there, those photographs have no non sequiturs. There are no red herrings. They are logically worked out because they were taken from landscapes that are really following what we're trying to promote. And it takes a long time. We probably looked through more than 100,000 photographs to pick the 500 that are in that book. Uh, uh, I know what that's like. I have to take uh, catch my breath here. Uh, I th I think if anyone is going to not necessarily criticize but maybe complain about the book, or it's the people in different parts of the country who want a book like this. And I think that maybe you should consider franchising <laughs> because it would be too hard to do it yourself. But th there's a need for a book like this on the desert and a need for a book like this on the Rocky Mountains. And you know that Californians think they're the only place on earth. So, uh, I mean, you, we can, of course, look at the book and, and understand the ideas and extrapolate and apply them to our wherever we live. But it's, uh, that's, that is the thing that sort of stands out a little bit to me is how Pennsylvania it is, <laughs> or a lot of well, it is. When we did the book, um, because I feel like it is, it's only a 400-page book with 500 photographs. You can only pack so much into that right. without becoming superficial. We wanted to have enough depth. So the agreement with the original proposal was that this would basically be centered on east of the Mississippi. Now, there are charts in the book for most of the different regions in the country, but what you're saying is absolutely true. And in fact, you know, if somebody's a Californian, go look at what Carl Bornstein has done on California native plants. If you want a specific regional guide, there are people doing things. And I got the same uh, questions when we did the American Woodland Garden. But surprisingly, I've lectured on the American Woodland Garden in Melbourne, Australia, hmm. in, in, in um, uh, Auckland, New Zealand, in Santiago, Chile. Hmm. People have invited me to speak because it's about concept. It is about learning to look, learning to understand, again, the relationships, the functionality. And I think if people have imagination, they can fill in their own set of objects 
But if you don't understand how things work, how they could work, and why they might work that way, then you're just lost in, in a world of objects. The objects are actually easier to fill in. Well, the book really helps all of us learn more and apply what we learn. And I've been speaking with Rick Dark, the author with Doug Ptolemy of The Living Landscape. And uh, thank you so much for speaking with me today on Ken Drew's Real Dirt. Well, thank you, Ken. Now, Rick doesn't think that a landscape has to be exclusively made of native plants. He just thinks that the plants that are in the garden, even if it's the clover in the lawn, should should serve in other ways than just uh, being utilitarian for human beings. The most important thing is that the plants in the garden and the design of the landscape contribute to the health and welfare of all the beings that may populate the garden. Join me again next week for another edition of Kendrew's Real Dirt, Gardening 2.0.